This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Greetings listeners, it's time for the April episode. I'm news editor Eddie Pearson and I'm joined on the podcast today by staff writer Ian Todd. Hello. Coming up later, we'll be telling you our top stargazing tip for April. But for now, we're going to take a journey back through time to the days of the space race in the 1950s and 60s. As this month, we are celebrating the 60th anniversary of an incredible event that happened in that time. And that is, of course, the first flight of a human around the Earth by Yuri Gagarin in Vostok 1, which happened on the 12th of April 1961, 60 years ago this month. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those um, moments in history that you sort of look back on in in the context of everything that's happened since then and how it's, mm. how it's sort of spurred on, you know, the states to, uh, you know, up the ante and, and sort of, um, because, you know, around about that point, you know, with um, Sputnik being the first artificial satellite, launched by the Soviets and the Soviets had the first animal in space and then they had the first human being in space. So you sort of look back on, on, on Gagarin's achievement as sort of um, really spurring on both sides and, and the sort of the, the space race that continued on throughout the, the rest of the 1960s. It's one of those things that every time I'm reminded, I find it absolutely shocking, which is that Sputnik launched in 1957. So that is the first time anything had ever been into space. And then just four years later, Yuri Gagarin is flying. Yeah. That, you know, four years today, that's the time it takes to, for, for NASA or other space agencies to create one singular mission. Yeah. Let alone develop the capabilities to be able to do something that had never even been dreamed of at that point. It's, yeah, it's quite incredible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they just went for it. I mean, both sides just went for it, didn't mm. they, really? So both people in 1959, that was when both the Soviets and the Americans started um, getting together their sort of astronaut candidates. Uh, most of them, it was selected in secret. So both the Soviets and the Americans selected their crews in secret, but they were looking for slightly different things. So the Soviets... Their astronaut candidates were, were generally younger, no more than 30 years old. Um, both sides wanted them to be intelligent, physically feet, very capable. 
but the Soviets actually wanted didn't necessarily want really highly experienced pilots. They still needed to be pilots and they knew how to fly. But because the Soviet missions were planned to be much more automated, they could actually get away with much less flight hours. So the Mercury 7, which was the US selected teams, they needed to have one and a half thousand hours of flight time, whereas uh, Yuri Gagarin and the rest of his cohorts only had a few hundred. So it was it was very different. Um, they also all needed to be short <laughs> <laughs> because they needed to fit in a space ship. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, Yuri Gagarin was like five foot two, I think he was. Uh, something about that, yeah. Um, the maximum that they had was five foot nine inches for the Soviets and five foot 11 inches for the Americans. Yeah. So the Americans could afford to be slightly taller. I don't know why it is. It's obviously just that sort of like prejudice and sort of like what what... What does what does a hero look like? You know, in, in our minds, mm. you imagine Yuri Gagarin must have been this sort of towering presence. He must have been this huge, amazing guy, but he was actually quite small, and he apparently has like kind of like quite modest and had like a really sort of like gentle, warm smile. He's actually quite a gentle guy. Absolutely, that was actually one of the reasons why it was eventually he that got selected as opposed to his cohorts. So by 1960, the um, Soviets had narrowed it down their their hundreds of candidates down to about twenty. Uh, and then there are that 20 down to six um, people who they were actively training to go into space. And Yuri Gagarin excelled in the testing. But the reason why he got selected was because everybody liked him. He was just a nice bloke. Uh, and I think they realized at that point that this the per- first person to go into space wasn't just going to be forgotten. They were going to have a place in the history books. They were going to be, you know, a, a PR exercise to be paraded around the world. Um, and so they wanted to make sure that they had someone who had a nice personality. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd, I'd sort of read a similar thing about Neil Armstrong, obviously, when they were deciding whether or not to Buzz Aldrin or Neil Armstrong was going to be the first um, human being on the moon. And one of the reasons they picked Neil Armstrong was because he wasn't military. He was sort of mm. a, a civilian. So it was sort of like he's more more relatable. Yeah, uh, I, I think it was also partly it was more relatable and also to to make it a bit more of that message of we come in peace. Mm. Uh, it, we're not putting a military man, it's a, it's a civilian. Yeah, um, and it's also really interesting looking back at um, Yuri Gagarin's uh, life as well, because he, he sort of uh, had a, quite a modest upbringing, didn't he? It's like his, his family worked on a on a sort of collective farm in the Soviet Union, and he, I, he I'd did. read... It was, he, his family grew up in a Soviet farm in the Soviet Union um, that was then occupied by the Nazis when Yuri Gagarin was about 10 years old. Um, and he ended up sabotaging their tanks and becoming a little saboteur and part of the resistance in, in kicking the Nazis out of Russia. Did he? I didn't know that. I didn't read that. <laughs> yeah. Um, which I think is just, you know, hero of the Soviet nation, as he would have one day become, he started early. Yeah, that's that's just cool. I mean, I, I'd read a, a, he'd, he'd witnessed like a, a Russian fighter plane making an emergency landing near his home, and that's what sort of spurred him on, because I think he was going to be... Um, like a like a, a foundry worker or like a molder, um, something like that. Yeah. Who's going to get a you know a, a, a trade like that? Um, but then that's what made him want to be a pilot and, and eventually joining the Soviet Air Force. And then he ended up getting involved in the uh, in the Soviet uh, space program. So whilst he was at school, he apparently one of his teachers was a, a World War Two Soviet pilot um, who was a big influence on him. Um, there was also, you know, lots of heroic stories of what these pilots were getting up to back in the World War, because um, it was only a couple of years afterwards, after all. And this 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 landing that he saw, 
Uh, and he did eventually become a foundry worker. He worked for a couple of years at a local foundry. His skills were immediately recognised and he was sent off to, to a technical school to get some more training. Um, and whilst he was there, he saw some posters on the world for an aviation society where he could learn to fly. Um, and so he finally saw that this was his chance to learn how to fly. And after a couple of years from that, he sort of realised, actually, you know, this is what I want to do with my life. And he joined up with the Air Force in 1955. And that's what he did for two years before in 1957, he was secretly selected by uh, the Soviets to try and become an astronaut. Yeah, I mean, you were saying there about um, sort of both uh, NASA and the uh, the, the Soviets um, selected their um, astronauts and cosmonauts in in secrecy. I'm I'm right also in thinking that um, once the Mercury Seven had been selected by NASA, they were sort of introduced to the world, weren't they? They were sort of like celebrities shown off at a big press thing. Whereas yes. sort of <laughs> every aspect of the of of the Soviets' side of the space race was was kept in secrecy, wasn't it? Absolutely. It wasn't until Yuri Gagarin was in the air above the Earth in Vostok 1, that his name was announced to the public even. Nobody knew who these people were. Um, whereas with the Mercury 7, uh, they were very, very public about these people. It was part of NASA's big PR push, basically, because um, NASA realised if they were going to... The space race was expensive and they needed the, the taxpayers to agree to fund them. Mm. <laughs> so they had the astronauts basically everything about the astronauts' lives and their marriages and their families was put in the pages of Life magazine. Um, they were seen as celebrities and taken all around the world whilst also trying to train to become astronauts. So it was it was two very different ways between the absolute secrecy of the Soviet Union and the incredibly public face of the Mercury 7. Yeah, I mean, it's also sort of a, a, a good tactic when you think that the you know the Americans were they were, were preparing for the Apollo program they were pre- preparing for the need in about um, you know just under a decade for for human beings to be trained so mm. so you needed all those you needed all those engineers and all those people who were going to navigate and work out the maths so you needed people who were going to be inspired to to go to and, and study STEM subjects in, in, in American colleges. And sort of what better way to do that than to sort of say the space race is happening, America's part of it, look at these cool guys, you could be like them. Well, the, the Apollo mission wasn't seriously considered until the sort of like the very tail end of Mercury 7. But there was definitely that view of like, this is something that the US is doing. We are trying to dominate space. We are trying to beat the Reds, <laughs> basically. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was it was very much tied up on that that Cold War idea of we want to be better than the Soviet Union. We want to show that um, it was as much ideological as it was about exploration or science or even politics. Yeah, definitely. Um, but, you know, as, as we've said already, sort of, I mean, up and tuning and, and including Gagarin's flight, um, the Soviets were leading the way. They were... Mm you know, they were winning. I mean, I, I think um, a, lot of that, a lot of that really was down to sort of um, Sergei Karlov, wasn't it? You know, he was sort of the, known as the the father of sort of Russian Russian rocketry. So he'd been um, really, really interesting life, Sergei Karlov, because he'd been um, mm. sort of, he, 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 was, he was arrested under the Stalinist purges and, and put into a, a gulag, so like a forced labour camp. Um, and he was, and he was eventually then moved to sort of a, 
a less harsh uh, prison, for want of a better word. And it was, was it was a um, I believe they called them intellectual factories or right. something, which was rather than shoving these brilliant minds into prison, will make them work for us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> essentially what happened. Yeah, exactly. And then when when he was released, he was sort of tasked with creating these intercontinental ballistic missiles, uh, where he mm. developed the R seven rockets, which were primarily for bombing bombing American yeah. cities, weren't they? You know, far, mm. firing nukes at the Americans. But um, whenever you sort of read the, you know, those the, the sort of histories of Korolev, I don't know whether or not this is the case, but the writers of Korolev's history and biography often sort of um, make out that he wasn't really interested in warfare and he sort of had to uh, appease the powers that be. So he, so he was sort of act as if he was making these um, but really he was interested in sort of aviation and hydraulics and and the actual mechanics behind it. He wasn't really interested in sort of, you know, nuclear um, warheads and, and rockets, and things like that. I don't know how accurate that is, but that's definitely the picture that you, that you get. There is a story that I love, but again, the kind of like exactly how truthful it is, is questionable, which was that when the higher ups that were, were funding Korolev's work on, on missiles came in, he was basically showing them around and going, you know, like, oh, here's a missile, here's a missile. And oh, by the way, over here is something that I've been working on. Pulls over a cover and there's like the Sputnik prototype oh. <laughs> that he'd been sort of quietly putting together Absolutely on amazing. his own. It's just like, you know, if you take one of these rockets and point it upwards rather than sideways, we could get to space. <laughs> um, was Was basically how... The, the space race, the space exploration started. Yeah, and and, and continued. You know, those those R seven mm. rockets that he de- you know designed and created were eventually developed into the the Soyuz that's still used by um, well Americans and Russians and Europeans at the moment, which is probably going to uh, change. You know, as the Americans begin to develop their own sort of um, private enterprise. But you know, all, all those all those journeys to the International Space Station on, on Soyuz um, rockets over the past decades. Mm-hmm. You know. You sort of think that's 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 Korolev. That that's but, yeah. that's his legacy. The, the Russian space program is very much a, if it ain't broke, don't fix it mm. <laughs> philosophy. <laughs> They've been using the Soyuz uh, for over fifty years with kind of only a few tweaks to it. Yeah, um, but it, if it ain't broke, <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, I think that you know, the, there's always going to be so many different mitigating circumstances as to why the Americans eventually overtook the Russians with their progress. But you know, Korolev died in like 1966. Um, mm. From sort of, um, it was either colon cancer or complications surrounding surgery on his colon cancer. But um, he yeah. died in '66, and sort of that's around the time that the Americans started overtaking the the Russians, really, isn't it? So it's it's yeah. y- you can you can sort of point to that moment and say, you know, he was such a such a, a brilliant mind and a leader in terms of their en- rocketry engineering. It can't it, be a coincidence, really, can it? It was partly, you know, the US just straight up outspent them. Yeah. Um, and partly because NASA, uh, the NASA very early on helped solidify all the various different space programs that were going on in the US. You know, NASA was formed very quickly after they started making space shuttle, uh, spacecraft. Whereas in Russia, in the Soviet Union, that didn't happen. They didn't have that kind of unified agency. So there was bureaus all over the place working on different things and there'd be two or three different places working on the same type of project, but building different rockets and trying to sabotage each other. Um, And it was Korolev that helped 
in the beginning to kind of keep those guys all hanging together and working together. Um, and then when he passed away, there wasn't really anybody else to kind of take up that mantle mm. um, with the, the sort of right skill set. And so things quickly did begin to fall apart. Um, unfortunately, as like with so much of the Soviet space program in the early days, we don't know for sure, partly because there was all of this secrecy and partly because so many of the documents that were around have now been lost. Right. Um, literally either physically lost, no one knows where they are anymore. Um, there's there's records of during the kind of fall of the Soviet Union, some of them being burnt for fuel to keep people warm. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> or, or just, you know, kind of molding away in some store and so they're unreadable anymore which is it's a shame there's a lot of people who've been trying to piece things together though so that's yeah, quite interesting ebay motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. There there was that big um, release about 10 years ago. Was it, it must have been the 50th anniversary of Yuri Gagarin's flight yeah. where the, the Russians, um, it was like a, was it like a sort of um, uh, request for information from Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, to the Russian government, mm. and they released all these files about what had actually happened during Yuri Gagarin's flight because it didn't actually go as as smoothly as they'd sort of suggested it had at the time no it did not it was very much at the time you know the 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 soviets were going like oh this is a complete success nothing has gone wrong exactly to plan but actually it was like it had started going wrong before they even flew yeah um so the night before the flight was due to go they suddenly realized that kind of gagarin's suit set up and parachute that the, the basically the seat that he was going to eject to come back down to earth with was too heavy. And so they were frantically pulling off everything from that that didn't have to be there. Whilst this was going on, Gagarin and his backup German Titov were under very strict instructions to not worry about anything. And so <laughs> the night before one of them is going to go into space, they were sitting around and talking about their childhoods yeah. and playing pool and reading poetry to each other. <laughs> Incredible. Before being told to go to bed and try and get some sleep, which apparently neither of them nor Kolarev got a single wink of sleep that <laughs> night, which I can understand. <laughs> I had read that um, they they put um, sort of sensors under the under the cosmonauts' bed so that they could tell whether or not they'd sort of been tossing and turning all night to sort of um, and if they had then they wouldn't have flown or if if you know Gagarin had have been tossing and turning then and Titov hadn't then they would have picked Titov because he would have been seemingly less nervous about the whole thing. I would not be surprised. That's <laughs> one of the things I've learned with with astronauts. Basically, you're not a pilot; you're an experiment. Yeah. If you're an astronaut. It's yeah. everything you do is being prodded and poked and have measured and yeah so yeah so the um with the Mercury Seven astronauts I can't remember who it was who, who came up with this but they said that they were like spam in a can because mm. they're just yeah. basically they're just they're just basically human beings in a in a can you know it's just to see if it'll work you're not actually you're you're not you're not a pilot anymore you're just yeah 
just especially like... the the early flights because both uh, Yuri Gagarin and Alan Shepard, who was the first American to fly into space, both of those missions were automated from the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so they didn't actually pilot it, despite you know being qualified pilots. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they were yeah. just there. Like you're going to do your thing and come back down. Great. Um, I I guess maybe they 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 didn't really know what what would happen to to the human body and or mind once 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 they were in space. Like would would a human even be able to to hold it together to actually fly? There was there was a, a distinct school of thought amongst some of the psychologists who were saying that the idea of being in weightlessness looking down on earth from above and looking out into the void of space would just the human mind wouldn't be able to cope and yeah. he'd just go completely like he'd he'd maybe try and crash the spacecraft to get back down to earth um <laughs> and so actually it was like gagarin could have taken control of the the vostok spacecraft um, but there was a code that he wasn't supposed to be able to know before he came back down to Earth. However, there is a story he told later of he was as he was getting into the Vostok, one of his technicians leaned over and said, by the way, the code is 125. And Gagarin turning back and going, I know someone already told me. Because <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people didn't like the idea of him not having being able to have any of the controls. <laughs> I know, and like if you knew the code and you were literally there and there was no one around, you could just all, all I have to do is tell him, and it could potentially save his life. You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but wasn't there also a story about the um, like the the hatch or like the door had to be unscrewed? Like it was like like sort of like yes. that morning had, had to be unscrewed so and rescrewed on that morning after they they woke up and had their breakfast of of space food tubes because uh, apparently you have to start as you mean to go on. Um, they, uh, Gagarin was kind of lowered in and, and was supposed to be sort of like screwed shut into the, the, the Vostok module. Um, but the door wouldn't shut or it it's not a hundred percent clear exactly what was wrong. Um, some people think it was that it was just a sensor that was broken and it was shutting absolutely fine. Um, but they had to, you know, frantically take it apart, put it back together. Um, find out what was wrong and then close the door again. Um, which is just what you want to happen to you whilst you're sitting on top of a bomb <laughs> about to go into a place where it is impossible for a human to live. Um, <laughs> when nobody's done it before. So like with, 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 with all these sort of astronauts and cosmonauts who, who were the first people to do it, there, there, there must've been an element of, you know, I could easily die here, but but I'm going to do it anyway. Like, yeah, that like, do you was. Think that someone like uh, Yuri Gagarin was like was scared and was really nervous, like you know, like we would be. Or do you think he was like so just really chilled out and 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 just had the had the sort of the nerve to just hold it together? I know a lot of the um, Mercury Seven astronauts were test pilots, um, and test pilots are they they basically purposefully try and stall out new aircraft to see if there's a problem. And they had an incredibly high death rate. So the Mercury 7 were definitely all accustomed to that kind of degree of uncertainty. Um, Gagarin, at the time he was selected, had only been a pilot for two years. Um, He was also quite young compared to 
astronauts you have today. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's, he must have been, you know, that, that's, they were all very aware. There was no kind of keeping it from them of how dangerous this was. Everybody knew that this was dangerous. Yeah, completely. Um, and there were no guarantees. So, yeah, but I couldn't do it. <laughs> no, no, no way. I mean, like you read that, sto- that story about um, Apollo 11 landing on the moon and Neil Armstrong, like having to find a place to land because they'd overshot with like the fuel gauge running out. And, and yeah, if he something didn't, like like seconds of fuel left. Yeah, and he did it because he was just he just nah. I'll just do this. I'll just be really really calm and just do it. Whereas you, you yeah. and I would just be just probably just screaming as we crashed into the lunar surface. <laughs> it is it is that that is kind of like the number one thing that you need to be an astronaut is to be calm under pressure and be yeah. able to make decisions quickly. That's Completely. like any time you talk to somebody about astronaut selection, that's the thing you need. Um, <laughs> um, I also love the story about um, Gagarin losing his pencil. <laughs> I know that was really cute so he launched uh and apparently as he was uh launching into space he let out a cry of and I'm going to be very sorry for my pronunciation here he let out a cry of Poyakali which apparently if you pronounce it correctly means let's go in in Russian so he was he was definitely he might have been scared but he was enthusiastic at least that's so nice um, you said, yeah, let's go. Goodbye until we meet again soon, dear friends. Oh, that's um, so sweet, isn't it? It's lovely. Yeah. And so he went up, uh, launch was absolutely fine. Um, the, the signal did cut out, which apparently for the people back on earth was incredibly, you know, that they, they couldn't hear from him. They knew that was going to happen, Yeah, but it was still a bit distressing, but he got into space absolutely fine. And he started going through all of the things that he needed to do. Um, and some of that was taking a log of, you know, kind of like how he felt, what he could see, what the gauges were saying. Um, and he was he was having a lot of fun sort of letting his notebook and its attached pencil, which was on a piece of string, just kind of float through the air um, because, you know, it, you're in weightlessness, of course, that's what you do. Um, and apparently he once went back to to grab his notebook and found that his pencil was missing. And it just floated away. And he apparently, he searched for it and he searched for it. And even when they got back down to the ground, they searched for it on the ground and no one could find it. So it's just completely disappeared. <laughs> I wonder what happened to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they didn't, I mean, it, it even even after the launch and even after he'd, he'd got into Earth orbit, it, it, it wasn't, it didn't all go to plan then, did it? Because they, because they overshot. Mm. So he, he was a lot higher than he should have been because the engine didn't cut out, cut out at time. Yeah, so he overshot by about a hundred kilometers. Yeah, um, which is is quite a big difference. Um, it was it was actually quite a major difference because it meant that he was that little bit higher above the Earth's atmosphere, and it was supposed to be if something had gone wrong, and he he like the the engines to fire the Vostok one to come back down to Earth hadn't worked um, at its original altitude of two hundred and thirty kilometers the spacecraft would have naturally come back down to Earth within a couple of days, about a week. Um, and there was enough food and water on board to, to to compensate for that. Whereas at where it was now, it would take as much as a month to come back down. And no amount of rationing of food, water and air, because you can't exactly ration air, um, he just couldn't have survived that long. So nobody told him this. Um, the the people down on the ground knew, but 
it was one of those situations of there is nothing that he can do about it, so we don't tell them. Yeah. Which is a philosophy I understand works through to today when it comes to astronauts. If there's nothing that can be done, then they don't tell them. Yeah. Um, which is understandable. <laughs> yeah, understandable. It's just a sort of harsh reality of, of, of what humans are trying to do. It's sort of like pushing mm. beyond Earth orbit, orbit you know. Yeah. Um, it is difficult and it is dangerous. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the, you know, uh, Gagarin did it, didn't he? He did um, just just about one one full orbit of Earth. He was, yeah, he didn't actually achieve orbit because his, basically his path went up and then came back down at about the same place. Um, the same place being somewhere in Russia. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> So, yeah, he did, you know, one lap of the Earth. Uh, it took him 108 minutes yep. from launch to landing, which uh, is slightly faster than the International Space Station. Uh, but then he was a bit lower. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and the other thing I was thinking about was, you know, um, so, like, he didn't um, he didn't actually land, did he? He ejected? Yes. Wasn't so that the other one? Ac- according to the radio, because um, as soon as... as Gagarin was safely in orbit and they knew he was okay. Um, they Radio Moscow was kind of divulging to the world, oh, hey, we've put someone into space, go us. Um, uh, which, you know, annoyed the Americans somewhat, especially as they'd had the opportunity to launch a couple of months early, but they delayed because of some safety concern. But so it was being announced around the world. And then when he came back down after 108 minutes, um, in order to be classed as a kind of... The first, from a, a sort of traditional standpoint, you need to be able to come down in the spacecraft that you went up in. Um, so when he landed, the radio said, I was like, yes, he definitely landed in the Vostok 1. Um, in truth, he'd actually ejected a couple of minutes before he hit the surface and, and came back down on a parachute. Um just because they hadn't worked out how to do a soft landing in a spacecraft yet, whereas doing it with on an ejector seat was something that they'd been doing for years. Yeah, uh, but that didn't come out with um, you know until much later. Do, do, do you think um, mm. if, if at the time that had been known, then that his flight would have been sort of voided, and people would have said, especially the Americans would have said, "Well, he, he hasn't done it. He hasn't achieved it." It was. I think today most people say it's like, no, it still counts. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think definitely if the Americans had known they would have been kicking off. Yeah, um, <laughs> definitely. Um, that was a, the other thing I read was that, um, you know, we, you see like CCCP on his helmet. Yes. They they did that just before because they were worried that if he fell down in like the, you know, in the kind of wilderness, like Siberian wilderness or something, people might have thought mm-hmm. he was like a an American spy. Yeah, apparently a couple of weeks before there had been like a, a an American sky spy plane had come down somewhere and they'd taken the pilot captive. Um, ah. And so they were worried that the same might happen. Um, and actually, there's a story of that he did land. Um, and because he was uh, that bit higher, his landing site was actually 300 kilometers from where they'd been planning on having it, <laughs> um, which meant it just came down in this random place in the middle of somewhere in Russia. Um, and yeah, apparently he just came down to Earth. And the first thing he saw was an old lady her granddaughter and their calf just <laughs> minding their own business. And then suddenly this man drops from the sky <laughs> and they actually said to him, it's like, um, are you a space man? And he was like, yes, <laughs> yes, I am. 
<laughs> well, it's funny you should mention that because... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, at which point some some of the people who'd been like nearby listening on the radio worked out who he was and started running over shouting his name and like lifting him up on their shoulders and stuff. Absolutely amazing. Um, which is, that's the way you want to come back home. Definitely. <laughs> it's, it's such a cool story. And one of the things that I always think about it is that, um, you know, it's sort of, it's, it, it's always put in the context of the Cold War and this sort of, you know, mm. fight between, you know, the, the Soviets and, and, and the Americans. And um, it is being so there's this competition, and you know, like, oh, like the Americans were raging, or like the West was raging that you know uh, that the that the communists had done it. But when you look at um, when you when you read about his sort of his world tour afterwards, he, he went to like Germany and Brazil and all and mm-hmm. around the world, and wherever he went, he was greeted by by ordinary people, and he was greeted as a hero. And mo- most people obviously didn't really care about the Cold War, but they were just gen- generally generally excited. That's like a human being has been displaced and, and there he is. It's, How cool is yeah, that? It's, it's one thing that you see time and time again. It's like the people who hold the purse strings and like are making the, the government decisions, they're very concerned about like, how will this make us look in the PR exercise of this? Whereas the people on the ground who are doing it, the people working at NASA, um, Korolev and, and people like Gagarin, they didn't care. They just wanted to go to space. Yeah. Um, and if, you know, fueling the kind of Cold War discontent got them there, <laughs> then sure, yes, it'll show up the Russians or it'll show up the Americans. Let's do this. Just give me your money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which sort of goes back to what we were saying about Karlev. You know, he's just like, yeah, I'll, I'll happily pretend to be making nuclear missiles if you give me, give me money to make rockets, basically. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I would say like maybe not a lot, not, not a lot of people um, know that he, that Gagarin did actually visit the UK um, yeah. a few months after his flight. So it was the 11th to the 15th of July, 1961, uh, Yuri Gagarin visited the United Kingdom. Um, Harold Macmillan was in, was in government at the time. He was prime minister. And as, as you say, they were, they were initially uneasy about Gagarin visiting because he's this Soviet communist hero. And how would that look to the Americans and the rest of the sort of um, mm. Western nation states um but because people including journalists were so excited to see him and so excited that he was coming they ended up at the last minute putting together this tour where Gagarin got to like lay a wreath at the cenotaph he got to have breakfast with the queen um and they extended his stay and he even got to um visit um Highgate Cemetery in London and um visit like uh, Karl Marx's grave obviously Karl Marx would have would have been a big a big, big figurehead, you know, for for a young, uh, young member of the Soviet Union at that time, and uh, you know, um, but there was a, there was a story I read about um, he, he was having breakfast with the the Queen Gagarin, and he he reached out and and touched her because because he was just sort of like a working class kid from uh, the Soviet Union. He'd only ever read about princesses and queens and princes and kings in uh, fairy tales, and he wanted to make sure that she was actually real because she was like a queen. <laughs> Because uh, that, that was actually the the UK was the only place where it wasn't the government that invited him. It was actually uh, the trade unions, um, specifically the Amalgamated Union of Foundry Workers, who invited him because he used to be a foundryman. He used to work in a foundry factory, um, and they invited him to to take a tour of an engineering plant in Manchester, as you do, <laughs> and. Apparently, um, and as soon as as the sort of like the, the UK government sort of saw that the public reaction when he came here, that was when they sort of went, oh, yeah, we should probably, you know, get him tea with the Queen and <laughs> all of those sorts of things. 
apparently when he he arrived in Manchester, it was it was raining, um, but everybody had still come out. Uh, and he basically said, um, ordered the, the the driver of his convertible car to roll down the the roof so that he could see them and they could see him. Because if these people, as he said, if these people can stand in the rain, so can I. Yeah. Um, he was very concerned about, you know, shaking hands and trying to like actually have a meaningful relationship with as many people as he could. Um, and apparently when he actually got to the factory, he apparently shouted at one of the journalists for for jumping on a piece of equipment <laughs> because it's like, no, 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 this is a working factory. You're about to ruin that. Get off. Cool. <laughs> 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 it was just that as like once a fa- factory worker, always a foundry worker. Definitely. And he, 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 he does all those stories that you read about Gagarin. He, he comes across as like genuinely a lovely guy. And there's, um, I think he said it, it was, well, it was either in Manchester or it was in London during his UK visit. Um, I think it was at a press conference and he said, um, he's quoted as saying, I think that if the Soviet Union were to combine its efforts with the West, we could make even faster progress in the exploration of outer space and could add even greater achievements to our credit. Um, so, so sort of a visionary, you know, at, at, at the height of the Cold War, you know, when the, the sort of nation mm-hmm. states were at loggerheads, he sort of saw what, what could be done if we worked together. And of course, we did end up working together. The Russians and the Americans did end up working together. And, and he was right. It did and lead to things like the International mm-hmm. Space Station and all, all, the, all the collaboration that, that, that's, that's come since then. Yeah, um, because actually it was unfortunately his flight had the exact opposite effect um, because the, the Soviets had basically at this point, the Soviets had won every single first. They The first um, spacecraft launched into space, the first animal to be launched and the first animal to be returned from space, the first object to touch the moon. All of those had been Soviet wins. And now they also had the first person in space as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of people think that it was it was that kind of motivation for why JFK eventually did his... Um, uh, I plan to go to the moon speech was because it's like, we need a win and we need a big win. Um, Whereas if Shepard had been the first to fly as he might've been, maybe that wouldn't have happened. And we'd be, we wouldn't have had the Apollo mission. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Yeah. So that is unfortunate. Um, And unfortunately also Gagarin didn't get to um, build on his success for very long. He was, he was always very confident he wanted to go back into space. He stayed on as a cosmonaut for quite a long time, but all of the people who were controlling the cosmonaut program were a bit dubious about actually letting him fly because they realised he was such a PR um, a PR asset. Um, but he was kept on the, 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 the rotors until another pilot died during um, the flight of, a, of one of the Soyuz craft. Um, when that happened, that was it. it nope. You're not allowed to fly again. You're never going to go into space again. You're far too valuable. Mm. And it was permanently banned from space flight. Um, unfortunately, this precaution wasn't enough. And on the 27th of March, 1968, uh, Gagarin was killed during a fighter jet flying exercise on a training exercise, just a routine training exercise. Um, and he unfortunately lost his life. Yeah. Mm. I think, um, you know, it's... It's such a tragic end, and he, and, and he was obviously so young um, when mm. he when he when he did die. And um, but I think that especially now, as we sort of look towards you know like NASA's Artemis missions and putting human feet mm. on on Mars and things like that, it's a, it it is a sort of a, it is a good time it, it is a good time to look back at uh, Yuri Gagarin's life and uh, mm-hmm. and, and that you know 
famous um, orbital flight, you know, the flight around Earth and the first flight into space. Um, because you sort of look back in 60 years, you know, it's like it's, so much has happened. Plus, and, and so much, maybe a lot of people argue not enough has happened in, in 60 years. Yeah. Since of, you know, especially since people people say that about the Apollo missions, don't they? You know, it, it just it's just ended. It's sort of ended, ended with a whimper. Um, you know, I think it's it, it's it's quite poignant looking back on uh, Yuri Gagarin's life and his achievements in, in, in the context of what potentially lies ahead. Absolutely. You know, in the last 20, we've had 20 years of constantly having a human presence on the International Space Station and out of all of it. Um, it looks like we're about to go back to the moon um, within the next decade at some point. Um, and people are now beginning to also look further and further. So it definitely, human space flight is at an interesting juncture. Um, it's taken 60 years to get here, but I think we are about to have like an entire explosion of human spaceflight in the next couple of years, which will be interesting to see. Um, and I should point out also, if, um, if anyone's in, really interested in Yuri Gagarin's uh, life and history and his flight and his achievements um, and wants to know more, um, be sure to check out our online lecture which is happening on Friday the 23rd of April, 2021, just in case you're listening to this in a year's time. Um, and it's hosted by Stephen Walker, who's a, a documentary filmmaker and the author of a new book called Beyond, which is all about this um, Yuri Gagarin and this exciting chapter in the space race. Um, and he's hosting our uh, virtual lecture, our, our webinar, where he's going to be talking about Yuri Gagarin um, and his achievements. And if you'd like to know more about that, um, just visit our website, which is skyatnightmagazine.com forward slash virtual dash lecture. Um, and that uh, you'll find information about uh, that lecture in particular, but also about all our um, other upcoming uh, online lectures and webinars. April sees the return of the Lyrid meteor shower, one of many annual meteor showers that greet stargazers throughout the year as Earth passes through streams of cosmic debris left behind by comets and asteroids on its journey around the Sun. The Lyrid meteor shower will be active from around the 14th to the 30th of April, but peak activity will occur on the nights of the 21st and 22nd and the 22nd and 23rd of April. This year, the Moon will be bright during peak activity, which will harm your chances of spotting a meteor, so the best time to spot a Lyrid will be between moonset and dawn. But regardless of this, meteor watching is a great activity you can get family and friends involved in, and a good opportunity to get out under the stars and see what else you can see, remembering to adhere to current lockdown restrictions wherever you are. The Lyrid meteor shower is so called because its meteors appear to emanate from the Lyra constellation, which can be seen high in the eastern sky around midnight on peak nights. Wrap up warm, grab a reclining chair or sun lounger, find Lyra in the night sky and get meteor watching. Give your eyes about 20 minutes or more to adapt to the dark and you'll see more stars and, hopefully, more meteors. If you happen to see any streaks of light racing away from Lyra, chances are you've seen a Lyrid meteor. A good activity is to have one of your observing group making a note of every meteor spotted during the session, marking down the date and time of each one seen. You can then submit your data to the meteor section of the British Astronomical Association or whichever your local data collecting body happens to be. Good luck! clear skies, and happy meteor hunting. So that's it from us this month. You can find out more about Yuri Gagarin's flight in the April issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we also take a look at a newly found group of so-called impossible stars, give our introduction into the art of astrophotography, and list the best places to stargaze around England. And that's not forgetting our regular sections that will help you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, 
and discover the best things to see after dark this month. From all of us here at BBC Sky at Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Acast or Spotify. Spotify.